I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, and this episode of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast is brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers, and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. The Evening Standard Rugby Podcast with Lawrence Delalio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Now, I've been left to my own devices this week. No Sarah and no Steve. So I thought I'd invite an old mate of mine onto the podcast for a bit of a yarn and a chance really to reminisce about a pretty big event, not just for us and the entire England squad, but I guess for England's sporting history, which took place 20 years ago this week. That, of course, is England lifting the 2003 Rugby World Cup. And my guest is no other than the man himself that led us all the way during that tournament. It's the one and only Martin Johnson. Jono, how are you, my friend? I'm good, mate. You? Yeah, very well indeed. Um, Now, you and I have caught up from time to time. Uh, It's been a flurry of little get-togethers this year for obvious reasons. But I must admit, I never thought 20 years ago that a handful of us would actually be getting together in one of Her Majesty's or His Majesty's prisons, recording Grand Slammers (laughs) for ITV, uh, which gave a few of us, including you and I, the chance to reflect on what happened back in 2003. I don't know about you, but I found that experience, other than just filming in a prison and all that brought... It was a fair bit of emotion, really, getting, what was it, eight or nine of us back together, especially when we sat down over a beer, sort of in between filming. Uh, do you get that sense as well? I think the thing is with it, I mean, I see you a fair amount. I see quite a few of the guys quite a bit, but you never really have a chance to talk because you're at an event generally and it's just, hey, go, mate, blah, blah, blah. And if you do, it's only for five or ten minutes. So to actually take time and just sit down and talk things through. The interesting thing is catching up with guys who you never see. Ben Cohen was you know, an example of that because I haven't seen much of Benny at all in the last 20 years. And obviously, he's a very different guy. I mean, he's a very young guy in that team 20 years ago. So you, you're going to be a different bloke when you're mid-40s than you were in your early 20s. You know, there, there was a lot of older, more experienced guys in that group who were still very sort of similar. They all change over 20 years, obviously. They're all pretty similar characters. Where Benny, by his own admission, you know, was very young, going through some difficult times as well in his life, and actually being a, a world-class athlete and rugby player at the same time. So I think with the time, you know, if you'd done that 10 years ago, it'd be a very different vibe than 20 years. I think that time elapsed gives everyone a chance to sort of look at things a little bit differently. I guess people's perspective changes. I mean, we were all in a very different space 20 years ago, and, and as you get a bit older... You know, I remember Matt Dawson saying to me, oh, I don't know how you, how did you do it, Lawrence? You know, having three kids while you were still playing for England. Saying, well, I didn't really plan it that way. But uh, I mean, certainly from my perspective, your respect and admiration for, for your fellow teammates, you know, goes up and up and up, probably the longer time that you spend apart from Yeah, I mean, we, we all had the pressure of performance on us, didn't we? We all had the pressure of striving to perform and to be successful as an individual within your teams, within your club teams, within the international team. I think it's easy to forget what that pressure is like at the time. 
you're used to it in a way. That's what you're very used to. 20 years later, you're not under that same pressure, maybe different pressures, but you just do what you do. I look back at it now and think, how did I train at the level as often as we did? We were doing that 50 weeks of the year. We had two weeks a year off, really, didn't we, at that point. But it was what we did. It's amazing you adapt. Like you say you had your kids, where well, you just get on with it. You just get on with it, and, and that's your life, and you deal with it. I think you're right. I think the more years that go by, the more you realise how good you know your teammates were, and how lucky we were to have one another, to be in a team that was good enough to win it. Because people love to name their best ever players and blah blah blah. Most of those guys, when they get named, have come out of very successful teams. There's not many players get picked in an all-time 15 who played for a terrible team. So, you know, there's loads and loads and loads of fantastic players who didn't get that opportunity because they weren't in a good enough team. And you're not going to do it by yourself or three of you or five of you. It's going to take a, a team. So, yeah, we were very, very fortunate to be in the right time, the right place. I think you and I spent some time together recently watching back that 2003 Rugby World Cup final against Australia. We should get out more, mate, shouldn't we really? Have I know, we, re- we, we really should. But I, you have, what people don't realise is that you have an incredibly sharp memory for detail and your memory recall and recollection is phenomenal. But I need you to set the record straight for me because I've been carrying this burden of responsibility and guilt all my life for the last, last penalty. years. The last penalty of the game that sent the game into extra time, I thought was given against me. And, <laughs> and you and I watched it back together and I hadn't realised that uh, it was actually, well, it was a close call, but I think it was you, mate. Are you giving me the burden? I, am, I, am I supposed to sleep tonight now? <laughs> well, you need to unburden me because I've been carrying it that. Was me, like, it was probably me, don't worry. <laughs> well, it was either me or you, let's be honest. It was, <laughs> But interestingly, um, I mean, obviously this World Cup uh, recently we just had has been defined by penalty kicks, really. You know, and quite interestingly, it was won by South Africa in a tight game. You could argue that Ireland and New Zealand, if they'd have taken their penalty kicks in the court final, uh, I think Ireland would have beaten New Zealand. And if New Zealand had taken their penalty kicks in the second half, they probably would have beaten South Africa, even with 14 men. Now, I learned a very painful lesson um, myself. It only cost us a Grand Slam. It wasn't my best week. We lost to Wales. I can't unburden you about one, mate. No, you can't. Because <laughs> you did look at me at the time and say, um, do you think we should kick for goal? And I said, no, no, we're going to kick for the corner. And you went, yeah, all right, fair enough. I'll back you. And obviously, Scott Gibbs went up the other end and scored. So I think my lesson was, if you get a penalty goal, kick it. And South Africa, obviously, this World Cup, every penalty they got, they kicked it. More than that, I mean, it makes me smile. Not many things make me smile, as you know, but... Uh... <laughs> You know, you get to World Cups. I do the Six Nations BBC. We're watching these games and you're watching the ebb and flow of the game. And more often than not, I'm a neutral, right? I'm watching Scotland, France or Wales. It's whatever it is. Often I'll just say, pop a job goal over here. You want the seven on over. Just get three points. Give yourself the lead. Get yourself back in contention, whatever it is. And very, very rarely in the Six Nations, anyone try for three with a drop goal because they all want to score tries, which is fine. I get that. It's cool. But when you're in games, you absolutely positively got to win. The lead is everything. If you get the lead, particularly as you're, you're rolling the clock in the second half, the opposition are under pressure. I mean, England, Argentina, at the opening of the tournament, you know, we have a guy sent off early on. Argentina, are, you know, they're into the game, very aggressive. And you're thinking, wow, it's going to take some winning. George Ford just kicks nine points and Argentina were out of the game. They had to chase the game and they, they, they looked ragged. And everyone was saying afterwards, oh, Argentina were poor. Made a semi-final of the World Cup. Well, it's the same in the final. I mean, you know, New Zealand in the pouring rain have tried to play all the rugby yeah. and they've invited pressure on themselves. And by the time they got in the game, they were down to 14 men, but they're 9-3 down. 
because South Africa have had three chances, kicked them all, and they never looked back after that, really. Yeah, I totally agree. I think New Zealand overplayed their hand a little bit. They should have had a little bit more tactical kicking, maybe, and just put them under pressure, because they're good hands, and they could stress South Africa with that, but they also stress themselves. So, yeah, totally agree. For half an hour, New Zealand just invited them onto them and made it difficult. John, I just going back to just before 2003, before the World Cup, we, we played that autumn series, didn't we? New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, and we won all three games. You got Simbind. I got Simbind, yeah. Do you want me to take the blame for that? No, no, no. no, no, no. <laughs> I want you to explain what happened after we scored a pushover try against South Africa. And we took the game to over 50 points, I think, which nowadays you wouldn't even believe that South Africa would ever concede that many points. They probably wouldn't. But, uh, you know, everyone talks about, obviously, the World Cup, knockout stages and Wales, and we'll get onto that in a minute, and France, and obviously Australia, ultimately. But I remember us thinking the hardest game of the World Cup for us is, is going to be that South Africa pool game. And that's the one that I remember probably being more nervous about that game than any other game that we'd ever played for England, ever, I think. Yeah, no, totally agree. By a distance as well. Obviously, the, the game in the autumn preceding that was a bit of a struggle. South Africa came with, with you know, intense to sort of uh, physically dominate us, which they didn't do. They had a man sent off. And I seem to remember you, you were very politely asking the referee to, to maybe blow the whistle at the end of the game because, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was tough, wasn't it? Well, it, it was a funny game in the sense that South Africa brought over a sort of mixed team. A lot of their younger, better players that were going to play the following year didn't come on that tour. So it was difficult for them. They'd lost to Scotland the week before. So that wasn't great. And I think we'd been warned on the, what their reaction would be, which it totally was, was to become very, very physical. And basically, if they can't win the game, try and win whatever battle they... So, I mean, I, I didn't really get the true sense of what it was like. I just felt it was a bit niggly. I didn't see a lot of the incidents that happened. I knew Johnny got taken out late or whatever. I don't think any of us realised until after the game, bro. We just thought we were just involved in another usual... There was always more cotton uh, ordered for England, South Africa than any other game anyway, really. Yeah. Um, and then, then it, it came out afterwards. They were very feisty. They're very prideful. So when we put 50 on them, we pushed them over, which is, you know, for South Africa to get pushed over for 50 points as well, it's like, it like a double whammy. It was the days when the referee still adjudicated time. It wasn't done separately. And I did it was Paddy O'Brien. I just looked at him and said, Paddy, I blow the whistle. Nothing good's going to happen now. I said, there was a couple of minutes to go. I said, nothing good is going to happen now. And uh, he did. But you're right. Corne Clicker came off the field there, captain. He was teared up. You know, he was so upset. And he was pretty defiant by the uh, aftermatch. What did he say? You twisted the knife. Eh? You twisted the knife today. This is not Perth. This is not Perth. We'll see you in Perth. So he laid the challenge down, you know, sort of 11 months away. And... Um, you know, that game was always going to be huge. Playing South Africa in the pool was always going to be massive. I remember waking up the morning after the South Africa game and, and the Sydney Morning Herald had, had a picture of Johnny Wilkinson kicking a penalty goal. And I think we won, what, 23-3 or something? I can't quite remember, but it was pretty emphatic in the end, even though it felt like the scoreline flattered us a bit. And then they said, is that all you've got? And we're like just laughing, going, we've just beaten one of the best teams in the world by 20 points and, and, and you're still moaning about it. Yeah, if you look back at it now, the points differential. I mean, they, they played well. I, I always say they played as well as anyone we played against in that tournament. It was funny. It was a huge game and I'd never been more nervous and anxious. The jeopardy of losing that game was enormous. After we put 50 points on them, if we'd lost in the, at the first hurdle really in the World Cup in the pool game, it would have been very difficult to recover. They came out all guns blazing, but I remember running out onto the field, finally getting out onto the pitch, and I just looked across at them. They were a very young team, very good, and obviously won the World Cup four years later. Backies Bolter, Victor Mapfeld, Joanne Smith, Jan Van Niekerk, John Smith, all these characters. And I just looked at them, and I just thought, we'll beat these, because they looked very young. They didn't have the experience we did of Test matches and, and World Cups and all the rest of it. 
And I always just felt confident in that game that we'd find a way to win it. We didn't panic. You know, we got the try. Once we scored that try, they were done. If you look at their body language, they were done. Uh, they were never coming back from it. And the last 10 minutes was relatively comfortable. But early on, it wasn't. You know, they, they had some real pace in their back row, particularly. And they're going to play their best game. They're going to come out and play their best game of the tournament. Well, I mean, I've, I, think, I don't think people realise that. Uh, because when you are the number one side, which we were, everyone played their best game against England because, you know, for whatever reason, people don't like England. I mean, we found ourselves in that situation again against Samoa, uh, where we're 10-0 down. Um, in the pool stage, again against Wales, where we go down the tunnel 10-3 down, having not played great. But we just had that ability, whether it was you know coaching-wise, playing-wise, of finding a way to dig ourselves out of some, some pretty difficult situations. Yeah, and if you think about it, when you, when you go into these games, South Africa was a big game, but you know Samoa, did we think we had to play our best game of rugby of the tournament to win that game? No. So no one says that, but you have that, okay, you don't need to be your absolute best. This is not absolute biggest game of the tournament. And when you have that and they come out all guns firing, suddenly you find yourself in the position we found ourselves. So we didn't do a good job of sort of putting those games away. We did a good job of giving them some light and some hope and making it a game. So, but in a way, it's not a bad thing because I think when everyone's telling you how great you are, that's when you normally get beaten the next game. You start believing it a little bit and you think, oh, we're great. Everyone was telling us how terrible we were leading into a semi-final. People forget that. We were getting told we were not playing well. And we hadn't played great. But also it's interesting because we probably challenged the coaching group more than I would say, well, listen, you went on to become England coaches. It's, it's be interesting to see whether players were challenging you in a, in a way. But I think when we had that debrief after the Wales game, you know, we, Clive gave obviously, you know, everyone a bit of a grilling. And then he said, has anyone got anything to say? And I think put our hands up and said, yeah, what, why are we training at 95 degrees at three in the afternoon when the games kick off at nine o'clock at night when it's slightly different? And yeah. I think, and, and they listened to that and they listened to what we had to say and, and they took the foot off the gas. And I think that trust between coach and players is really important and really, really important, I think. Yeah, and, and they, we did have a good relationship. I, I think it was a funny week, the Wales week. I got injured right at the start of the week, just a little tiny twinge. And they were so, and rightly so, the coaches were very, very protective. They didn't want anyone getting hurt. So I hardly trained that week. It's not a great sort of mindset to get ready for a test match. And I remember going out to play it and thinking, is this a World Cup quarterfinal? It didn't really feel like one in many ways because we're playing a team we'd beaten by large margins. And, and yeah, they came out and played well, played okay. We didn't. He's seven points down, but we put them away. I think the biggest factor of all was the challenge of playing a French team. You know, suddenly we're playing a team who we did fear a little bit. And, you know, if you get it wrong against a French team and they're up for it, and they've been up for it the week before and destroyed Ireland, you know, you know, you can get embarrassed and beaten. But we also knew we could beat those guys because we'd done it more times than we hadn't in the previous five years. So I think the more we sort of got written off a little bit, the more everyone talked them up. And they taught themselves up a bit, if you remember. I mean, they made the brilliant mistake of, what was it? England's backliner diesels, our backliner on whatever it was, on Leaded Four Star. Well, I think the front row, they destroyed everyone. They talked about how good their back row were, which obviously, you know, got under the skin of uh, of all of us, really. Yeah, yeah. We had Richard Hill come back into the game. We'd had Mike Cat that started instead of uh, Mike Tyndall, which was probably a little bit harsh because Clive very rarely made any changes to the team. Once people start saying, you know, our back row, their back row is going to destroy our back row. Their front row is going to, you know, dominate our front row, really. We'll see about that Saturday. And I've talked about this game a bit this year, really. Even though they scored the first try, we seem to get control very, very quickly of it. 
And at half-time, I remember thinking, we've got this game under control, which can be a dangerous sword to have, particularly against a French team. But they never they never got out of our grip. And I think primarily because every time we had a bit of control, we also had scoreboard pressure as well because yeah, yeah. Johnny probably played one of his best games for England, I think I've ever seen him play in terms of the control. And we just built pressure and, and they, you know, they had a man Simbin, didn't they, for a trip? In today's game, he, he might not have come back on, but there was a right call that he only got a yellow card in my well, view. In, to, in today's game, it would have been five against five, John. let's be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I, think, I think that they gave penalties away. Wilco kicked him. He was doing his little snap drop goals all over the place and it's death by 20 cuts and uh, 20 penalty kicks or whatever it was. And we just squeezed him to death. And the weird thing at the end of the game is there was, there was very little jubilation on our part because if no jubilation really it was just sort of job done because we sort of knew we'd won the game half an hour ago really and it was get off the field get ready for next week because we've got six days to get ready for the biggest game of your life I mean you and I talk about this a lot but it, it felt to me like the pressure going into the tournament was probably at its greatest in the pool stages and then the further we got in the tournament I felt and I don't know whether you'd agree with this that we almost seemed to relax collectively you know what I mean not not relax in in a mental way but we sort of always anticipated that we would get to the semi-final and then the final and having got to the semi-final and, and then emphatically beating France we kind of just relaxed a little bit and we were kind of really at ease you know going into a final the way we were you've only got to win right before all those games before we won but I wasn't good enough oh you gotta do this you gotta, you gotta no 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 you just gotta win the pool games are there to get you to the top of the pool you don't win anything for winning the pool there's no trophy, there's no presentation, no one remembers you winning the pool, but they're there to get you through. So you get to the semi-final and a part of the simplification of everything, I think mentally for us was beat these guys by a point and you're in the final and then you've got a chance. So I think you're absolutely right. Every day that went on before the semi-final, I felt more confident that we would win the game. And um, before the final, you know, I used to get nervous about games. I could always mentally put together a scenario where we'd lose in my head at times. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that wasn't a bad thing because it gets you on the edge but I, I just saw against Australia I thought we've got more ways of beating them than they have ways of beating us they can beat you because they're a good team they're smart they're very good players defending champions I think people forget yeah, I mean it's interesting isn't it because the day of that final people don't realise it's an 8pm kickoff, right it was my 65th cap for England it was your 84th and final game for England as it turned out we had to get through the whole day with all those supporters outside the hotel, which was brilliant to have them all there. But, you know, there's no way you could even escape. I mean, everyone has their own routines. I mean, I was thinking, if we win, probably not going to be back at the hotel for a few days. If we lose, probably going to exile myself to some island far away from anywhere. We'll all walk into the sea at, at Manly yeah. Seafront and not I mean, come I th back. I think we'll all get on a boat and walk the plank and never return. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I remember I spent half the day packing and then half the day unpacking and then packing again and then unpacking. And before I knew it, I'd got to about seven o'clock. I mean, you're right. It's hard to kill time. I mean, I was grateful that I'd played 64 times for England before that. And I wasn't feeling too nervous. And the other thing I was grateful for is that, that we'd beaten Australia six times previously, uh, home and away. We knew we were a better side than them. They knew we were a better side than them, but we still had to go out there and do it. And I think we realised that. And as it turned out, they played probably their best game of rugby against us, even though it wasn't a great quality game, because it's a final and they never are. You know, there's often mistakes. There can be, you know, big things that can turn games. But we got the job done in the end. Yeah, you're right. It's a long, long day. And again, you know, you say experience. We'd been there and we would, we'd done it. We'd played a lot of evening games, particularly down there. So you just get into the routine. And my thing was I I just cut the day in half, really. 
we'd probably go out and do a, a bit of a training session when we or, or team not some training session sort of run walk through, through. Yeah. walk through yeah in, in sort of late morning come back and have have some lunch and then i'd go and try and just lay down i maybe wouldn't have slept but certainly close my eyes for an hour or 90 minutes you know not burning nervous energy thinking about the game too much then when you come out of that you go and eat again and then then you're in it you know then it's like waking up in the morning and the game's not too far away because like you say waiting for whatever time we left the hotel half five six o'clock it's a it's a long old wait yeah and we had an hour and a half to the stadium i mean I, the other thing that, that that struck me was that certainly from the quarterfinals onwards we'd been in perth we've been traveling around melbourne etc I mean, the fans that were out in, you know, with their England jerseys, which you don't get at Twickenham, for that semi-final, it certainly sent me over the edge during the anthems. And I'm sure for the final itself, they were incredible, really. And, and it, I think it added to that kind of responsibility that we felt to actually, you know, get the job done, really, and, uh, and finish it off. Well, we had fans out right from the start. They were there. I mean, there's always lots of, you know, English out there, aren't they? Living there, backpacking, come down for the trip. As we got down to knockout time, it, it got even bigger. And certainly in Sydney, outside, we were in Manly, in the Manly Pacific Hotel. So people would just come for the day, wouldn't they, to Manly, as they would anyway, because it's a nice place. And then the added bonuses, you might catch an England player. Our hotels, and it overlooked. We were on that sort of mezzanine level to overlook the road and the, the street and the pavement with the trees and the beach behind it. So it was lovely. But you come down for breakfast on a Wednesday and there'd be hundreds of people on the pavement looking up into where we were eating breakfast. It was a goldfish bowl, really, wasn't it? We were it was like 300 bowl. people in reception going berserk when you went training on a Tuesday. And we were all sort of hobbling out there. You know, training on a Tuesday, the guys are not super focused as they leave the hotel. You know, they're just, they're just ambling out of the hotel. But they were going berserk, weren't they, the fans? Um you're right. It did. Add, it did. I remember. I remember some. I remember a couple saying to me more than one. You know, we spent our life savings coming out here. And he's going up. Don't, don't tell, tell me. That, what, I, I spent a fair bit of my wind bonus on my parents getting out there. I can assure yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I was saying to someone the other day, my ticket bill. God knows what my ticket bill was. About four grand, I think. Before. But, <laughs> I know people don't realise that they think. Well, you know, you get the odd free ticket, and that's about it. <laughs> you probably got two, didn't we? You probably got two free yeah. tickets, don't we? Yeah. But yeah, they were just everywhere. I mean, I was at a do, we had a do in Leicester last week, 20 year reunion with the seven Leicester players. And it's amazing. There's people there, there's a lady there. She had a book, sort of photo album book she'd done for the tour. She went on the Leicester tour, met her husband on the Leicester World Cup tour in, in 2003. They got married. They're still married. So yeah, just, just incredible. I think for people who watched it at home, but those that went away, they probably had, you know, in a way, just as memorable a time as we did, if not more. You're right. And for me, the memories are your mum and dad watching England games with my mum and dad and all the various other parents. And I'm sure the current England team have that as well, because people don't realise what they put into all of that. And I think the culmination of, of winning, and, and obviously there's only ever two emotions, you either win or you lose. Yeah. You're either ecstatic or you're absolutely miserable and, and, and feeling uh, like the worst in the world. But in terms of you've achieved everything in the game, you played over 230 times for Leicester. You over 300 times for Leicester. Premiership games, 230, oh, something like uh, listen, I'm not going to outstato the stato, am I really? Let's be honest with you. you played 16 seasons for Leicester, 10 years for England. The final obviously does define you, but it doesn't really. I mean, had we lost, we'd be devastated. We wouldn't be getting together today. But uh, I mean, where does it sit in all the things that you've achieved? You've been captain of the British and Irish Lions. You've won a series in South Africa. You've won God knows how many pots over the years. Well, where does it sit in? Because I get asked this all the time. And I, I don't know. I mean, it was your last ever game for England. Did you plan that? Did you plan it to be that, whether we won or lost? No, not really. I think Clive was very, very good, wasn't he? He just said, I don't want to hear any talk about retirement. And that's absolutely right. You know, when you see guys say, oh, I'm going to retire after the World Cup, then that becomes another story to talk about. It shouldn't, you know, he was completely right. 
just get on with it. Talk about playing, not talk about not playing. I probably knew in my heart of hearts that was going to be the end of it, but I didn't really dwell on it when I was doing it because it was there was so much to do. I'm like you, I don't rank things and, and put and say, oh, this was there, that was there. We've both been lucky, mate, to, to win lots of things, have great times. But we also went through the losses, didn't we? You know, I, I was with John Eels the other day and the poor thing played in three World Cups and only won two of them. Let's all feel sorry for John. He didn't I, th- I, thought he, I thought he was Mr. Perfect, but he's, he's, Mr. <laughs> no. he's, not, he's not perfect at all if he lost, what, if he well, lost, he lost the, World the World Cup. Cup. Well, we lost stuff, didn't we? We lost with 99, we're all sat there losing it. So I think to win it, the World Cup is the biggest thing now. And, and to do it right at the end of my career as well was also perfect because it's difficult to top you know, if you do it when you're 24. Well, I mean, I remember winning that line series with you and many others in 97, and I was 24. And my view was, well, if we just won a line series in South Africa, you know, anything and everything from that moment onwards is possible and achievable. But people say, what's the most enjoyable part of 2003? And I still live and stand by this, is that in the changing room afterwards, when we were sat there, and there was all sorts of emotions. There were people in tears. There were people laughing. There were all the players who hadn't played, which is a really tough thing to do, to sit and watch a World Cup and not having played because you all want to be part of it. There were all the staff. Somehow Daniel Craig had managed to you know, find his way in there. I can't quite remember. And I, I just knew that we had about an hour together where it was just the best feeling in the world. But I knew from that moment onwards that that team would never be the same again. And that, for me, is the hour that I cherish probably more than anything else in my rugby career, if I'm honest. Yeah, I think you're right, you know, to actually go and do it. Because, you know, 97 was a great tour, but we didn't have that expectation on us to win. You know, we were out there, played some fantastic rugby, won a Nictus series, and it was brilliant. But that was it. It was gone then, wasn't it? That Lions team doesn't play again, and you go back. That England thing was a long, a long time. You've been in the squad since the mid-90s. Lots of the guys have been around a long time. We'd lost in 99. There was a huge amount of pressure, external, internal, whatever, on us to win it. So was that the greatest seven weeks of fun, enjoyment of your rugby? No, probably not. But it's something you have to do. You have to do this to get where you want to be in that changing room with the cup. So in terms of that, in terms of satisfaction, absolutely, yes. Absolutely, yes. And um, yeah, what do you do? I mean, that's a difficult thing. Once you get there, what do you do? You don't think about that moment. You only think about the bit before it, before the whistle goes. So we took care of that bit eventually. And then the rest of it sort of happens and is gone, like you say, gone very, very quickly. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, and this episode of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast is brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. 
QBE is one of the world's leading insurers, and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Do you know what? The thing that disappoints me the most is not that England haven't, you know, everyone thinks, oh, England have been in finals since 2003, but haven't managed to get over the line. And people go, oh, you must be really pleased about that because it means that your after dinner rate is, you know, still at the. <laughs> I said, no, no, I don't, because actually, you know, I want every other England player that played after me to experience that same feeling that we had. And I, and I genuinely mean that. And the fact that they haven't actually disappoints me. And the legacy of winning that World Cup should have been probably more than it has been. We put so much effort into winning the trophy, but I don't think really anyone, even ourselves, but you know, the, the powers that be, the, the the governing body, put any effort into what happened afterwards. And, you know, for me, having done this, you know, the boys of winter with uh, with interviewing every single player, I think there's as much frustration that we haven't managed to win anything. I mean, you were the first coach to win a Six Nations title in 2011, which was like eight years after we won the World Cup. I think there's, there's lots of factors around that. I mean, the, the guys were, you could see at the time, I think we were out in New Zealand in 03 when they announced that we're going to go out into New Zealand in 04. And I remember thinking, that's insane. Yeah, that's why you decided to step down from me. From well, England, I, 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 <laughs> I'll give that one back to Lowe. He could, he could captain this guy. It's just an insane decision. We got absolutely yeah, battered. But it, it, I mean, worse than that, it shortened some guys' careers because, you know, we went on tour in 03. We beat the All Blacks, we beat Australia fine. We then, that famous meeting, we had a couple of days in Perth, acclimatising in Perth in um, various establishments. And then the famous, right, you've got three weeks off or whatever it was before training camp starts. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And then Dave came, Dave Redding came out, the fitness guy, with a fitness manual as big as a phone book. Do you remember them? And he just dropped them on the table. Here's yeah. your fitness programme. So there, there was no break. There was no break. And we were back into camp. And then mentally... I used to love going to England camp. I used to love coming home because yeah, I was intense in England camp and at the end of it, and particularly if you've been successful, it was nice to get home, get back to your club. I struggled a bit when I came back from the World Cup. Not because I was fatigued. It was nothing to do with physical. But you, you played for Leicester for another two years. I remember, yeah. you know, listen, we can look at players coming back these days and, and welfare and all that nonsense, but the reality is you've just got yourself in the best shape of your life to play and win a World Cup and you play seven games if you're lucky, right? So your job is to play rugby. You're paid to play rugby. Uh, presumably, I mean, I was, I, once I'd sobered up, which admittedly took a week, you know, I played the following week and I played for Wasp. You were playing the following yeah. week for Leicester. It's your job, mate. Get on with it. Get yeah, yourself yeah. back. Get on yeah. with it. Yeah, and, and I wouldn't have not wanted to play, but I did find it, it was the most difficult time ever coming back from international just because of, I don't know, it was everything that was going on. Is it because you knew that you weren't going to be leaving again to play international rugby? No, I don't think it was that. I just, I think it was the, the of hitting that peak mentally. I think, I think that was it more than anything. I don't know, maybe, you don't know, maybe, yeah, knowing you were done, that bit was done. But we played and, I, and the guys wouldn't have not wanted to play. But to then go on tour and take some of those guys on tour was crazy. They, they could all have done with a summer off just mentally well, I remember myself, we won the European Cup that year. Uh, after the World Cup, we won the Premiership title. Literally the next day after we'd uh, lifted the Prem title, I was on a plane on to tour. New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. Getting absolutely battered. And I looked at the coaches and Clive was, his head had gone. All the coaches. Uh, it would have been very difficult for all of them. And we were a few guys, you know, we lost. Johnny didn't play for about three years. Um, yeah. Treb got a lot of injury. Phil Vicks had a lot of injury. So we lost quite a lot of pieces and not just the older guys very quickly. Well, we lost the king, that's for sure, because you resigned. Listen, I, I, I know I've spoken to you about this before, and 
there's nothing new here. But you spent, what, just over three years as head coach of England. You know, now that you've had time to reflect, I, I mean, England haven't really been successful, not just for a period of time, but for 20 years, you look back and think we should have probably achieved a bit more. You actually had three years where you won the title for the first time when England hadn't done that in 2011. And then obviously you're defined by, as a coach, by that World Cup experience in 11. I might be right in saying this, but I'm not sure you've been involved in rugby since then. I mean, how do you look back on that? Yeah, it was it was just unfortunate because we actually had quite a good team. I think we won that year. How many test matches did we play? Probably played eight, 12, 13 test matches. Probably won 10 of them, won the championship. But people just said, oh, you know, Mike, Mike did this or whoever did that in uh, wherever it was, Queenstown there. Yeah. I think we also brought quite a lot of good players through who went on to have decent long careers. I mean, you think who we brought through in that... Well, Ben Youngs would be one, would he? Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, I'm just thinking, when, when, I, when we got in, there was still quite a lot of the other three boys left there, but lots of sort of people have been in and out. So we're trying to establish some team, some continuity, give them some sort of ownership of the team. But, you know, in the end, I mean, we got Ben Fogan came through, Chris Ashton came through, Benny Youngs, Toby Flood. Uh, although he was picked before Dylan Hartley, Courtney, Dan Cole, all came through that group. I and mean, some of them are still playing. Jesus, some of them are still going. Three of them in the last World Cup. So actually, we were lucky. We came into, even in the, the worst period in my career with England, it was a pretty settled team relatively. And you can then perform. If you turn up and no one knows really what they're doing, yeah. it's a very difficult place. So you try to get some continuity. Guys have got to back that up with performance to keep themselves in there. But um, you're trying to build some continuity. And I think we started to do that really. When we got knocked out of quarterfinal to France, who, could, who probably should have won the World Cup, who we'd beaten earlier in the year. So we didn't play great and we could have won, but we didn't. So I guess one of my biggest disappointments, and, I, and I'm still kind of wondering, a lot of people said to me, Lawrence, why don't you coach? Why aren't you involved in the game? You know, you've got the easy chair. You just do a bit of punditry and a bit of, you know, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Forgot that you ever lost a game of rugby and <laughs> just, just criticise players, etc. But We're all better when we're retired, mate. Well, exactly. But I mean, you look at the current squad. I mean, what is there? Mike Cat. There is uh, Trevor Woodman to a degree. There's a few, isn't there, that have done a bit of coaching. You've had a little stint. I mean, I think there was a lot of intellectual property within that group that could have been harnessed a bit better. You know, I still believe that you should have some sort of role in English rugby, whichever way you look at it. And I still think that there's probably one or two others that could, should, would. But I don't know whether there's a, a not invented here syndrome um, that, that sort of existed uh, post-2003. The RFU just wanted to move on in a different direction. Whereas I think there's a lot of players there who um, possibly could have been persuaded to, uh, to to stay in the game. Yeah, I, I think you, yes and no. You've got to be careful. I mean, it's a bit back in our day syndrome, whatever. And I yeah. think you see lo- sorry, loads of instances in sport where you might have it, say Manchester United now. They've been successful for so long now, they're not. And everyone just harks back to what was, what was all the time. I think any team has got to find its own thing. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But, but surely the, the legacy of any successful team is not dismantling everything that was successful is building on it and I do get the sense that you know and I, I've got to be careful what I say here but when when you look back on the England team over the years since then you're never going to be at the top of the world forever you're always going to come down but I think that there's things that I think were put in place that they're as valid now as they were back then and and they seem to have been dismantled really well you when you look at you know performing teams they've probably all got similar values maybe sort of expressed in slightly different ways. But fundamentally, you need that huge hunger to be successful. You need that huge hunger to be successful. If you're comfortable, and I'm not, I'm not saying this about any team anywhere, but if you're just happy where you are, 
then you'll stay where you are or go lower. I think you have to be hugely congruent to be successful. And, and, you know, Clive had that. We had that. We were never happy. And in a good way, we probably didn't win as much as we could have won in those preceding years before 03. We blew some grand slams. So it always kept us grounded. It's never comfortable. I think that's the thing. You know, I look back at your England career and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. But you, someone said to me the other day, I was all right for you with England because you knew you were going to get picked. <laughs> so what are you talking about? You've got no idea what you're talking about <laughs> because you never felt like, oh, I'm going to get picked because you were always under pressure from someone for your place. That's because we never we never used to name a squad until uh, about a week before we got together. So you yeah, actually yeah. didn't know you were going to get picked. No. And there was lots of good players around and they were all putting you under pressure and the coaches might use that as a, a motivation to put you under pressure. So you're never comfortable. You're always fighting and striving and all the rest of it. So that's gone now for us. You know, it's gone now for us. So you can look back with a little bit more perspective. I was, going to, I was going to ask you about that pressure because I don't think I've ever asked you this question, but having played at the highest level, having been the England coach, having won the World Cup, when you watch games now, is there part of you that still thinks maybe I might have a little role in the, maybe I'm itching to, <laughs> to get to get back into it because I don't know I asked myself that question I mean what does Martin Johnson do with himself now what, you know when he's watching a game of rugby well I was I was watching a World Cup final and it was down to a point I was thinking even if I was supporting New Zealand or South Africa I'd probably be feeling sick right now you know no I'm, I'm fine mate I think I'm lucky I've, we've done what we did watch my boy play rugby do a little bit of coaching with him um, I'm happy with that. I've not got a huge desire to put myself through that every Saturday. Any chance of we might be seeing him in an English shirt then at some point <laughs> in the future? He's half Kiwi, mate, isn't he? Is it, no, no. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's just get this right. Okay? <laughs> when it comes to the rugby, mate. He's, he's, uh, well, I think we all know where he's born. Yeah, He's only 15, mate. So that, you know. Listen, when we all get together this week, um, it'll be only the second time, uh, the first time being 10 years ago, that we've been together since 2003. Obviously, I, I get to see you. I, I get to see Robbo. We've done a bit of filming. There's one or two players I do get to see. <laughs> Who are you most looking forward to getting together with? Do you think we'll be scrummaging with Phil Keith Roach, our, our scrummaging coach, at, uh, at some point in the evening? To be honest, you probably nailed it a little bit with Roachy because yeah. he will love it so much, won't he? It'll be great to see him. Nah, just all the guys, man. Just getting back into that. You know, blokes don't grow up that much today. So it'll just be that banter and that that fun. We've got a great memory. You know? it, it would be great. You get back with any team you played with. It's always good fun because you've got stories. That's what I tell people about rugby. You don't have to win a World Cup to have great stories. It's the memories, isn't it, really, that, yeah. that you create. And, and actually, I mean, listen, listening to you, when we interviewed you for that book, speaking to you, and then suddenly I think Neil Back turned up, then Ben Kay turned up, and then uh, Julian White turned up. And it was like, everyone thinks that you lot all get together. Like You said, no, we don't get together. So it, it was really nice just seeing the, the banter flying around. And that's just amongst the Leicester lads. And I'm sure you experienced that the other day at your, your dinner. Now, perspective is different. You know, everyone thinks that it was brilliant to win the World Cup, which obviously it was because we created a unique memory. But also, it sort of affected people in different ways. If you look back now, what do you think, what has it given you? Is it just a level of satisfaction? I mean, what, what is it that it's given you? Yeah, more of that for me, really. I think just that if we hadn't have won it. Now, if you're not good enough, that's one thing. If your team's not good enough, you know, there's lots of players, lots of good players who could say, oh, I didn't win a World Cup in the that irks me. And you, you just look at them and go, mate, you, you were never good enough. The team was never good enough. You might have been, but your team was never good enough. You're never going to win a World Cup. Would you, would you, <laughs> so, well, so, bru so brutal. So brutal, John. Well, I love it. It's true. You have, you have to be good enough, don't you? You have to be good enough. They're not won by the eighth best team in the world. They're won by the top one or two teams in the world. So to be in that position was fantastic. And we knew, I think, once we started winning those last two or three years, being in that squad when you know 
wow, we're in a top squad here and we've got great players and we've got such depth of player as well. You go, wow, we're, we're a squad to be feared. We can beat anyone. But then you've got to go and do that thing and win the World Cup. Otherwise, you're that team that didn't win the World Cup. Well, also, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because now you've said that, I mean, I, I was there in France for the latter stages, and, and but I, wa- I watched Ireland lose to the All Blacks. Horrible. And I, wa- and I watched France lose to South Africa, and I believe that they were two teams that probably were good enough to win the World Cup, yeah. and they didn't win it. And yeah. it's no surprise that none of the French coaches or players turned up at the at the World Rugby Awards because they're still absolutely devastated. And I think Ireland, I'm not sure they'll ever have a better chance of winning than they did. And that would have been like us losing in 2003. I think I'd have been on, um, well, I'd have done 19, 19 years, you know, for the assassinating the referee, I think. I mean, one of the, do you know what I mean? Literally. Would have been walking walk the outback, mate. Oh, um, no. Yeah, horrible. So, so, I mean, there is that feeling. I mean, and listen, there's, there's no one better place to, to judge. But when you look at France now and you look at Ireland, they've got a bit of rebuilding to do because just mentally, having gone to that World Cup and believing they could win. So this next championship, you've obviously got those two teams who are, who are massively disappointed, but still incredibly talented. You've got England who, whatever people say, kind of reminded us of the early days of when we were together, when we played some pretty ugly rugby, but we actually just found a way to win. But ultimately, probably weren't good enough to, even though they were a whisker away from getting to the final, probably weren't good enough to win it, if I'm honest with you. What are the final things that they need to do now? Because, you know, I think they're a very capable side. They finished third. They're probably not the third best team in the tournament, if I'm honest, but they were still a bloody good team. And Steve Borthwick would have learned an enormous amount from that experience. But is it about them going into the championship and just winning more games than they lose? It would. I, th- I think there's an opportunity for, for some young guys to come in and play in the team because we, we're going to lose. You know, sometimes the World Cup is a, an end of an era for, for quite a lot of guys and this one's definitely one of those. I think, I think there'll be quite a lot of England players sort of ending their careers now and not, and not playing next year. So there is an opportunity there and it will, they will be a bit transitional. But I think for England, there's an opportunity. We need our young players to come in and very quickly understand what Test Rugby is. Yeah, it's not Premiership Rugby. It's test match rugby. It's physical. It's quick. People say to me, oh, look, I saw so-and-so play. I saw X, Y, and Z play for his club team. I'll just say, could he play in that all-black Ireland game? Could he play in that South Africa-France game? Could he play in that World Cup final? Because that's, that's what test match rugby is about. You know, you have to be able to operate in those situations. It's not playing in the premiership where you can you know, flick a ball out the back of your hand and make someone look fantastic. Everything you do is important. Every error is amplified. Every action you take is amplified at test level because you get to do less. The better game you play and you get to do less things, but you have to do them absolutely solidly well all the time. Otherwise, you, you will get your team exposed. There isn't opportunity to make up for a couple of mistakes. It just won't happen. You'll be behind and beaten. Listen, I shall look forward to seeing you and sharing a glass or two. Uh, it's been an absolute joy and a pleasure to chat to you. I'm sure we could fill several podcast episodes talking about England careers, Leicester, the great rivalries that we had, the good times. I just want to clarify one quick thing, Jono. When I first met you properly, it was in 1994 and you'd come from the Lions tour and you joined England. And I didn't realise this, but you and I were rooming together and I hadn't really watched the game properly and realised that you'd been knocked out by some bloke from Transvaal. I've been knocked out by Yann LaRue. And when we got back into the room, I've got to be honest with you, I was thinking, he doesn't talk very much, does he? <laughs> but I hadn't really realised that you'd actually been knocked out cold and you were probably concussed. Yeah, he called me right at the end of that game and they uh, they said to me, where are you, Jono? I was at Ellis Park, playing Transvaal at Ellis Park. Where are you? And I think I said, 
I just guessed at Welford Road. Um, <laughs> Where I normally am, Welford Road. Where... <laughs> he, he was a piece of work. He was a guy that bit Fitzpatrick. Yeah. You got banned for that. No one gave a toss when you knocked me out. <laughs> well, I'm sure you've um, I'm sure you've had your brain scan. Uh, and uh, I, know... I did. I came back and had one that year. Did you? Yeah, yeah. I came back off that tour and they yeah, sent me for an MRI scan, yeah. I mean, I, I was just talking about this over the weekend. There's obviously some headlines which are, they have to be taken very seriously. There's about 250-odd rugby players players, you know, looking at retrospectively at the governing body and trying to find out what they knew, what they shared, what they didn't share, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the game is a much safer game as a result of what's happened in the past. But just just quickly, before I let you go, when we, I mean, you and I were there when the game went from Tuesday, Thursday night to literally overnight, went to playing five days a week and playing on a Saturday. And you got to admit that no one had a clue what they were doing. Um, so the game is a much safer game. But we just played games, didn't we? I mean, I remember sitting with you and having a beer. We played like 47 games in a year or something. <laughs> I think our first, our first year we played a lot, yeah. I, look, I, things move on. I mean, the medical care guys get now all over you know, their body What compared to what it was even when I finished everyone, when I started, is just a completely different league. So the knowledge that people have, the understanding that people have, like you said, it, when we went professional, no one knew what they were doing. You know, we were just doing the best thing that we, we knew at the time, weren't we? I, yeah, playing a high-level rugby union for a long time, you, you're going to take some knocks. But I, I knew what I was getting into. So my knees were a bit sore in the morning. Yeah, I just remember giving you a shoeing at, what was it called, <laughs> Repton Avenue? Repton Avenue, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just makes me smile on the inside. <laughs> Listen, whenever I played, I came off the field thinking like I'd been run over by a couple of cars. And, and then, and then I, I got into a bathtub full of other grown men uh, that looked like a sewage pit. And then I went upstairs and probably had about 10 pints in about half an hour. And I knew that none of that was good for me, but it was a lot of fun. And sure enough, we changed and adapted very, very quickly when we realised that we weren't going to get picked. And we did what we had to do to get picked. We changed. You went down to six pints. Yeah, well, <laughs> correct, correct. But uh, listen, I've worked out very quickly, a bit like you, that the game requires incredible sacrifice, not just from you, but from everyone around you, your family, your friends, your your loved ones, your work colleagues, etc. It's only worth doing if you're going to, you've got to win more than you lose, you know? Yeah, I think you're right. It, it, it's a sacrifice that other people make. I didn't think my time was a sacrifice because that's what I wanted to do. It's the other people. But, you know, my family loved it as well. My family loved it. Our wives and girlfriends had a, they had a great group, didn't they, with England? They had a good time. They had, they had a good time. I do recall. Listen, Jono, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you. Um, I could talk forever and listen to you forever. I hope you enjoyed this special episode reminiscing about the 2003 Rugby World Cup. My thanks to Martin Johnson. I'll be back next week along with the rest of the team. But don't forget, if you've not already done so, then please make sure you give us a like and subscribe to the podcast. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye. The Evening Standard Rugby Podcast with Lawrence Delalio. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, and this episode of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast is brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers, and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions.